The Kurkota Empire, a dynastic, primarily Hindu nation that at its apex ruled over a substantial chunk of the northern portion of the Indian subcontinent, reached that apex sometime in the late 8th century, though they held much of their eventual territory from about 625 CE until about 885 CE. This region was broadly referred to as different permutations and pronunciations of the word Kashmir, depending on the language being used and the people doing the pronouncing. Over the next two centuries, more or less the same area was held by the Utpala dynasty, which was another Hindu kingdom, and which took their religious practice a little more seriously than those whom they replaced, building a whole lot of Hindu temples alongside several notable Buddhist monasteries. A great deal of philosophical work was created in this region at this time, and some very notable spiritual, mathematical, and creative innovators were born thereabouts too. Some of those innovators stuck around, but some migrated elsewhere, increasing the region's influence with nations in other parts of the subcontinent. The Shah Mir dynasty became the first Muslim family to rule Kashmir in around 1339 CE, and they governed until the mid-16th century at which point Islam as a religion was fairly well established in the area, though it took a while for the, at the time, predominantly Hindu population to accept that shift. The Mughal civilization conquered and held Kashmir for a few years in the late 16th century using the Sunni-Shia divisions within the local Muslim population as a wedge to divide them before taking over. Though to be honest, the Mughal Empire was quite experienced with conquest at this point, so even lacking the divide-and-conquer advantage, they probably would have taken control. They already held all of modern-day northern India, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, and the Kashmir region was kind of just the icing on the cake. After the Mughals, the Afghan Durrani dynasty moved in, taking much of modern-day Afghanistan and Pakistan alongside much of the original mountain-locked Kashmiri region. These rulers were, by most accounts, fairly brutal to just about everyone that they conquered, even their fellow Muslims. But fortunately, for those living under their rule, their reign was a fairly short one. Only about 69 years from 1751 until 1820, when the Sikhs defeated the Durranis in the Kashmir Valley and added the region to their own growing empire. Unfortunately, that relief was short-lived, as the Sikhs imposed fairly oppressive anti-Muslim laws in the region, including a ban on the public Muslim call to prayer and other fundamental religious rituals. They also applied very high taxes on Muslims compared to those who practiced other religions, so the majority Muslim community in Kashmir suffered greatly economically under their regime. These taxes, which were especially horrible for Muslims working the land, growing food and cotton and things of that nature, drove a lot of these locals away, out from under the auspices of the Sikhs to somewhere they hoped they would be able to actually feed themselves without going broke while trying to do so. The Sikhs seemed to realize their taxing error when a famine hit in 1832, caused in large part by the missing farmers who had fled those taxing taxes. 
After this realization, they cut these land taxes in half and started offering interest-free loans to farmers in an effort to get the 15 sixteenths of the region's fields, which were dormant at the time for lack of workers to work them, up and running again. This change in posture achieved that goal and then some. The Kashmiri region became the second highest earner across the entirety of the Sikh empire. And it was around this same time, interestingly, that Kashmiri shawls, made from a very fine type of wool harvested from goats in the region, became popular with outsiders, especially Western outsiders who visited the area. The word Kashmir, with a C, is derived from the name of the region, Kashmir, with a K, and the spelling was just butchered over the years as this fabric became more popular, because that's what tends to happen with exotic-seeming things that start trending far from their original source. In 1845, a few decades into Sikh rule of the region, the first Anglo-Sikh war, which was a conflict between the Sikh Empire and the East India Company, a joint stock company out of the United Kingdom that was formed to establish trade along the Indian Ocean region, but which eventually killed a bunch of people, took over most of the Indian subcontinent, fought a war with China, after which it took Hong Kong as a prize, and colonized portions of Southeast Asia, this company fought it out with the Sikhs, pretty much right after having fought and won a war with Afghanistan, replacing the Afghan leader with a puppet ruler that they controlled. To defeat the Sikhs, they took advantage of a crazily complex rulership situation in which the Maharaja, the leader of the Sikh empire, died, with his place then occupied by a sequence of a half dozen or so replacement Maharajas, all of whom died within days, all under mysterious circumstances. The East India Company leveraged this power vacuum to move forward, scooping up territory along the way and bulking up their weaponry while the Sikhs were distracted by their power struggle. The Sikhs claimed that the war started accidentally. They moved in to reinforce their borders, and the British saw them moving in and decided that they were under attack before they started firing, declaring war. But it's hard to say for certain how everyone was feeling at that moment and who actually made the first move. What we do know is that there were battles won and lost by both sides, but in the end, the East India Company defeated the Sikhs, who surrendered on March 9th of 1846 under the Treaty of Lahore, which, among other things, stated that they would give up a valuable swath of land to the British, along with an indemnity of 15 million rupees, the latter of which the Sikhs could not afford after all their internal tumult followed by that conflict with the British. So instead of money, the Sikhs gave the British the Kashmir region, along with a bunch of forts and smaller nearby territories, which was judged in its entirety to be worth about 10 million rupees. Gulab Singh, the leader of Jammu, one of the regions ceded to the British after the First Anglo-Sikh War, and Singh himself having sided with the British in the conflict, offered the British 7.5 million rupees for the princely states of Jammu, Kashmir, Ladakh, and Gilgit-Baltistan, princely states being a term given to, essentially, vassal states, lesser states that are not necessarily owned but rather just dominated by the larger British Raj, which was the name of the territory held by the British in the region. His offer was accepted, and those regions were handed over to his rule, though they were all quite different areas and did not fit particularly well together as a unified whole. Ladakh, for instance, was populated primarily by Tibetan Buddhists. The central Kashmir Valley, on the other hand, was overwhelmingly Sunni Muslim. Baltistan was home to mostly Shia Muslims, 
while Jammu had a fairly hodgepodge population of Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs. The Singh family, the descendants of the guy who bought the region from the British, held the area for a century, that century culminating with the end of British rule in the region in 1947. That year, the British Raj was divided into two portions by the British, the Dominion of India and the Dominion of Pakistan. Carving up the country in this way, it was theorized, would help stabilize the region, because it would mean the Muslims would have their own state, Pakistan, and the Hindus would have theirs, India. The Kashmir region, based just north of both India and Pakistan, but consisting of people from many different faiths and backgrounds, struggled to decide which new nation to join. That hesitation angered the Pakistani government, which assumed that Kashmir would join them, based on the majority Muslim populations held in some portions of the region. So they sent guerrilla soldiers into Kashmir to force their hand. The Kashmiri ruler reached out to the British for assistance with the Pakistani soldier problem, and the British said, basically, we will give you help, but you're going to need to stop wavering and join India if we do. The British then convinced India to send soldiers into Kashmir to evict the Pakistani soldiers, getting rid of all but a few of them. But the United Nations, which was invited to mediate the conflict between the involved countries, insisted that no decision could be made for Kashmir to join either country until all of the soldiers had been cleared out of Kashmir, and a vote by the local inhabitants could then be performed. The next year, a ceasefire between Pakistan and India was brokered by the United Nations, but a UN-sanctioned vote was never held on the larger issue of how Kashmir should be divided. And the region was, arguably, inequitably broken up, and in a manner that didn't really make sense if they were going to use religion as a dividing mechanism. Pakistan was given administration over a sparsely populated, underdeveloped portion of the region, while India was given domain over much of the rest of it, including the largest population centers with the most development, even the Kashmir Valley region, which was clearly Muslim-majority. Things got more complex in 1949, when after their communist revolution, China began to send soldiers into the northwest portion of Ladakh, building roads and settling in, showing that they believed, at least, they had territorial rights in the area. Since just after World War II, when India and Pakistan fought the Indo-Pakistani War of 1947, the region has been broken up into smaller states, administered by, but not officially owned by, three larger countries. Pakistan has the northwest portion, called the northern areas and parts of Kashmir. India has the central and southern portions, Jammu and parts of Kashmir. And China has the northwest portion, called Aksai Chin and Trans-Karakoram Tract. Claims have shifted a little bit over the years, but as of early 2019, neither Pakistan nor India recognized the claims made by the other. India claims the Trans-Karakoram Tract that China administers, and Pakistan claims both regions that China administers. The peace is largely held due in large part to a dividing line between the territories that was established by the United Nations, though there was another Indo-Pakistani war in 1965 that resulted in a stalemate and even more bad blood between the two countries. What I want to talk about today is a recent shift in posture toward the Kashmir region what has happened as a result of that shift, and what might happen next, given the larger context of relationships and conflict in the area. You 
you are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. As I mentioned in the intro, Kashmir is a term that generally refers to a region made up of territories that have been disputed by India, Pakistan, and China since right after World War II. There has been a United Nations-maintained ceasefire in the area since then, which has been mostly observed with few exceptions, and those few exceptions have generally occurred between India and Pakistan. Very recently, though, things have changed. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the BBC, and it's entitled India PM Narendra Modi Vows to Restore Kashmir's Past Glory. This is a story that I was first made aware of when someone I follow on Twitter began to retweet a smaller account whose owner was posting after a tumultuous day trying to escape Kashmir. The journey was tumultuous because major roads and access points, like airports, had been blockaded by the Indian military. Towns were filled with armed Indian soldiers who patrolled the streets on foot and in military trucks, their faces covered with metal face masks, assault rifles in hand as they enforced a curfew on locals. In addition to being sequestered in their homes, Kashmiris faced a communications and shipping blackout. No phones, no internet, their ATMs out of money, grocery stores running severely low on supplies. Kashmiri leaders had been put under house arrest, and communication services had been shut down on August 4th of 2019. On August 5th, India Prime Minister Narendra Modi's plans were announced to repeal Article 370 and 35A, which I'll talk more about in a moment, and to split the Jammu and Kashmir region into two new Indian territories, Ladakh and Jammu and Kashmir. On August 9th, Tens of thousands of peaceful demonstrators marched through the Kashmiri city of Srinagar when Indian soldiers opened fire on them with automatic weapons. As of the day I'm recording this, about a week after that protest, the region is still locked down, and Prime Minister Modi has announced that the area will be returned to its past glory by stripping it of its special protections, which he says have encouraged corruption and terrorist activities and that the region's more complete integration into India will play an important role in India's future development. Across the border, Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan has said that he will be the ambassador for Kashmir on the international scene, finding out what has happened to the people there during the current communications blackout, and pleading their case, and the case of the region as a whole, to the rest of the world. There are reports that Hindu-majority areas have received comparatively lax treatment by Indian soldiers, and that locals, who have managed to get their voices past the lockdown, strongly suspect that Modi's ambition is to fill the area with Hindu settlers so that the state's demographics shift from predominantly Muslim to predominantly Hindu, something that Indian officials have shrugged off, but which many international analysts also think is a likely motive here based on how this is all played out and what Modi and his party have said previously on the matter. The aforementioned Article 370 and 35A are important in understanding the specifics of what's happening here and why it is happening. Article 370 of the Indian Constitution, until just recently, gave a special status to Jammu and Kashmir, the smaller state within the larger Kashmir region that is contested by Pakistan and China, which allows the state to have its own constitution, flag, and internal administration, which means in practice that this constitutional addendum gave Jammu and Kashmir the ability to manage their own operations, but not complete autonomy. They had their own power structures, but it was also understood that parts of the larger Indian constitution still applied to them. They just had a lot more leeway to sort out their own specifics than other Indian states are allowed. 
Article 35A of the Indian Constitution was another add-on that was in force until just recently, and it gave the Jammu and Kashmir state the ability to say who can become a permanent resident there and what rights and privileges permanent residents have. This means, in essence, that the separate government that ran Jammu and Kashmir had the power to say who can move into the area and who cannot, who can become a resident, who can buy land, who can build, who can run businesses, and who can vote in local elections, who can work for the government, and who cannot. What Modi actually did here, then, is tear up these two articles of the Indian Constitution, but the consequence was that Jammu and Kashmir were, overnight, less independent losing a special status that no other Indian states have had, bringing them in line with all the other states in the country. And in doing so, he also disempowered this internal power structure that they have built up and built around since 1947. This is also, as I mentioned before, why many analysts suspect that a substantial part of the move is meant to help the Indian government rebalance the population in Kashmir to something that they prefer, something more heavily Hindu. Local government had control over who could move in and vote previously, but now the national Indian government controls all of that, and thus there is nothing to keep Hindu citizens from moving in and recalibrating the census more in the centralized Indian government's favor. Now that said, there is also a deep history of insurgency in the Kashmir region, of what in other situations might be called terrorism, which have been fairly well organized and orchestrated and funded pretty much since the early days of the region's existence, but more intensely from the mid-1980s onward. Early insurgent acts were generally related to the pre-World War II history of the region, since it has been held by so many different groups over the years, and it still rankles many Afghanis, for instance, that an area that was part of their nation and which holds so many cultural memories for them is now held by a national opponent, and one with a different majority religion than them. In the mid-80s, though, local government officials began to create their own armed militias after a disputed state election, which was ostensibly rigged, though there have been allegations of election rigging in the region since 1951, and Jammu and Kashmir governors have admitted that it is a thing that happens pretty much every election. So why this specific bout of rigging was any different than all the others is not clear. But in 1987, a particularly contentious state election led to all sides forming their own small armies of soldiers, which then merged and grew into a more formal, armed, local group called the Kashmir Insurgency an organization that was considered to be the most vital national security issue for the country of India in the 1990s because of how big they became and how active they were. Killing people, kidnapping people, fighting government soldiers, killing police, destroying infrastructure. And this broad group had people fighting for different purposes. Some wanted independence for the region to become its own separate country, while others wanted the state to leave India and join Pakistan. Most of the more populated areas are Muslim-majority, remember, and Pakistan is a Muslim country, while India is officially multi-faith but population-wise is Hindu-majority. Knowing all of that, it maybe makes a little bit more sense why India did what they did the way that they did it. 
From their perspective, this is a region that has been stuck in a quagmire of turmoil, violence, and corruption pretty much since the beginning of the modern Indian nation, and the area has been home to bands of armed militants, some of whom, a former Pakistani president has admitted, have been trained by military forces within Pakistan, with the purpose of sending them back across the border to stir up trouble, and hopefully someday cause a revolution in the area through terrorist acts. Might it then, from Modi's point of view, make sense to lock things down, to put the corrupt leaders under house arrest, to get soldiers on the streets, and roadblocks in place, first, early on, before the change in status is announced. And stepping back a few paces to look at this from a slightly bigger picture, wouldn't it be a kindness to people in the area to bring a model of government that seems to be working pretty well, all things considered, elsewhere, throughout the rest of the country? to an area that has been throughout history at least a few steps behind in terms of development, in terms of quality of life, except for the wealthy, corrupt few at the top of the pyramid. Wouldn't even dramatic action, with soldiers wearing face masks and a great deal of discomfort during the transition, be worth it? For the changes that could be made, the quality of life improvements and better oversight on the bureaucracy, wouldn't that be worth actions that could be construed as abusive to the outside world and to those in this region because of the benefits of those long-term gains? I think it's possible, maybe even probable, that this sort of thinking has at least partially informed this decision to do things in this way. I also think that the flip side of that thinking quite likely played a role here, more specifically that Modi is playing to the crowd and utilizing the gains he realized in a recent electoral victory to finally implement some changes that he previously didn't have the mandate, the public and government support, to implement. India's population is about 80% Hindu, and the rest is a combination of Muslims, Christians, Sikhs, Buddhists, and non-religious folks, among others. India's government, though, the party of which Modi is a part, is the leader of, is Hindu nationalist, meaning they believe that the country and the Hindu religion should be unseparated. Their faith should inform their policies. This is a stance that is, of course, a little off-putting for many people, including many practitioners of the Hindu faith who do not believe that their ideology should supersede that of their neighbors. But this concept was popular enough to get Modi re-elected in May of 2019, and he took that, it would seem, to be a signal that it is time to pull out all the stops and double down on the Hindu nationalism project. Thus, we have seen him allowing, through inaction, violence against non-Hindus, situations in which mobs have attacked Muslims in particular, and he's allowed this to just happen with little or no punishment for the aggressors. And this uptake in Hindu nationalism, mixed with what might be described as increasingly staunched or increasingly aggressive acts, depending on which side you're on, has been seen as alarming by political analysts and United Nations regulators, and perhaps especially their neighbors to the north, the Muslim-majority nation of Pakistan. What's especially disconcerting about this move, the cancelling of those constitutional articles and the military occupation of the Jammu and Kashmir region, was that India took these actions unilaterally, not consulting the United Nations, which has helped maintain peace in the contested region for decades, nor with Pakistan, who, along with India, has claimed this portion of the larger Kashmir region in particular. This brings us to some vitally important meta-context, without which this whole situation might seem like a minor diplomatic scuffle between leaders who want to seem strong for a nationalist base, something that is not at all unusual in global politics 
and which usually blows over as political winds shift and new dynamics fall into place. International watchdogs are concerned that this aggressive move by India could prove to be a spark that sets alight a highly volatile situation that has been building up and becoming more and more volatile for generations. Consider that both India and Pakistan have nuclear weapons. India developed theirs first, conducting their first test detonation under the project codename Smiling Buddha in May of 1974, which made them the first confirmed nuclear-capable country beyond the five permanent members of the United Nations National Security Council, which shook things up a bit internationally. But India made clear from the get-go that the test was meant to be peaceful, and their development of a nuclear arsenal was purely defensive, something that it would be political suicide not to claim, by the way. But they did put in a lot of effort early on to make sure the rest of the world knew that this was not an empire-building effort, but rather an effort to achieve the same defensive capabilities that other large nations enjoy. Which was why they later built out their own nuclear triad-based deterrence, with nukes ready to counterattack via land, air, and water, and why they've kept specifics about their arsenal secretive. They haven't announced any numbers, which adds some credibility to the idea that they have these weapons just in case, but are not using them as a saber to rattle during negotiations. It's estimated that India has somewhere between 130 and 140 nuclear weapons, and sufficient additional fissile materials, in their case weapons-grade plutonium, to make another 10 to 50. It was India's Smiling Buddha weapons test that led to Pakistan's crash project to successfully develop their own nuclear weapons. But they had already begun sorting out the details and building the requisite infrastructure several years earlier, in 1971, in response to a revolutionary movement that became the Bangladesh Liberation War, a conflict that resulted in the eastern chunk of Pakistan breaking away and becoming the country of Bangladesh. India came to the secessionists' aid during this conflict and handedly defeated Pakistan, which made Pakistan realize that they were outmatched militarily and needed something that would help them balance the books. They started their nuclear weapons program and intended to build an atomic bomb within three years, their leadership painting the effort internally as a national survival priority, the assumption being that if they could not fend off India, they could be conquered or enthralled to them at any time which was no way to run a country. Instead of having their own weapon by 1974, though, Pakistan watched as India conducted their first test, which was what fanned the flames under their flagging program. Even with that additional incentive to move fast, though, Pakistan didn't conduct their first nuclear weapons test until May of 1998, two weeks after India conducted their second, long-delayed nuclear weapons test. There's complexity to this situation, beyond even the nuclear-armed, historically oppositional pseudo-theocracies with long-shared borders, engaging in fresh rhetoric and unilateral land grabs, though. China also shares a border with India and is just across the Kashmir region from Pakistan. And China, if you recall from the intro, claims for itself the Aksai Chin and the Trans-Karakoram Tract portions of Kashmir, both of which Pakistan also claims, and the latter of which India also claims. And China's first nuclear weapons test took place 10 years before India's in 1964. Though to be fair, China did receive assistance from the Soviet Union early on in their nuclear weapons program, so they had a jump start that India and Pakistan both lacked. Each of these countries, then, is armed with nuclear weapons, with mature nuclear programs, so they're not neophytes in this space, like North Korea, 
with technology that is untested and of questionable reliability. They've got infrastructure, know-how, and arsenals. And those arsenals are presumably pointed at their potential enemies, including those located right across the border. Each of these countries, too, claim this region in which they all have historical cultural claims, and in which they all see potential political, economic, and military benefits. Benefits they'd like for themselves and which they would love to deny to their enemies. And each of these countries has additional internal issues that are almost certainly influencing their behavior within this increasingly tense situation. India, under Modi, is the world's largest democracy and an ostensibly secular state that's becoming more and more religiously radical in the sense that portions of the Hindu majority are looking around and wondering why their religious ideals shouldn't be more clearly reflected in how the government operates. Modi is leveraging that realization as a political force, using it to make popular changes and, in turn, utilizing that increased support to justify nationalistic international moves. Basically using his popularity to do things that otherwise might not be supported because they are risky or brazen or both. This us-versus-them dynamic is not an Indian invention, but it is something that seems to be an increasingly potent force within Indian politics and a force that Modi is using as part of his attempt to get more international recognition and respect for India on the global stage, something that they, as a rising power, likely would already have more of if it wasn't for their neighbor to the northeast. China, a country that has long been in a similar circumstance as India. Massive population, but a large economic gap between a very few people at the top and the majority of the population living fairly impoverished lives below them but which has, for a variety of reasons, had more success at remedying that situation over the past few decades. China's middle class has grown astoundingly fast in the historical context for such things, which has led to their growth being labeled, even by secular economists, as an economic miracle. India's growth, on the other hand, while also quite positive and arguably in the right direction, with more of the country's population feeling the benefits of successful programs and investments, hasn't been quite so miraculous. It's been a slow growth engine compared to China's explosion in economic growth. So by comparison, India has seemed to be borderline weak, and the fact that China's military and diplomatic power has increased alongside their economic power has not helped that comparison when it comes to India's international perception. That burgeoning conflict is amplified, to some degree, by China's increased and increasing desire to build zones of control around itself to serve as a buffer between its core and any foes who might, at some point for some reason, want to invade or to chip away at their sphere of influence. Their effort to enforce their military and economic will in the South China Sea is a tangible manifestation of this desire as is their investment in the Belt and Road Initiative, which is meant to help them build their own supply chains worldwide while indebting other nations on the continent and around the world to them. Nobody likes having perceived enemies within easy striking distance, and the more of a spatial buffer you can build up, the less you have to worry about a Cuban Missile Crisis-style situation. Big old weapons of mass destruction right on your doorstep, making everyone even more twitchy than usual. India, then, for China, is kind of a tricky variable. China's been highly successful in expanding their aegis, their zone of control, but there's no easy way to dampen the potential threat of this other rising power to their south, 
and the advantages that China currently has over the rest of the world, including major powers like the United States and the European Union, things like population and land and demographic benefits, are advantages that India could have over China at some point. Not ideal for China if you are forecasting a few decades into the future and trying to alleviate potential threats before they become tangible threats. Pakistan, too, is a country with perceived enemies just about everywhere in their vicinity, bordered by Iran to the west, Afghanistan to the north, Kashmir to the northeast, with China just on the other side of that, and India to the east. It's difficult to imagine a trickier political and geographic position to be in anywhere in the world at the moment. Pakistan also has a very large population, over 200 million people, which while nothing compared to India's 1.3 billion and China's 1.4 billion, still places it as the sixth most populous country in the world. And it has a quickly growing middle class. It's actually considered to be one of the world's most impressively developing regions in that regard, despite a seemingly endemic collection of problems related to corruption, terrorism, poverty, and overpopulation strain on infrastructure. Very relevant to this conversation, Pakistan is also currently led by Prime Minister Imran Khan, a world-famous cricket player and former captain of Pakistan's national team, who's especially beloved locally for having led the country's team to a Cricket World Cup victory in 1992. Already a well-known public figure, author, and philanthropist, Khan entered politics in 2002 and worked his way up to become elected prime minister in 2018, his campaign defined in large part by a nationalistic populist, meaning someone who tends to focus on normal people, often at the expense of perceived elites, contrasting themselves with more established professional politicians in this way. He ran on those messages, meaning in practice that his chest-thumping and Pakistan-firsting has brought him and his rhetoric and his actions into conflict with the same sort of thing from Modi and India's direction. And both of them and their ambitions have been alarming to China, which is arguably quite a ways ahead of India and Pakistan when it comes to building up international credibility and regional power, but which is also in an expansionist, nationalistic, somewhat hardcore ideological mode of operation at the moment. All of which is why, despite being a seemingly small, isolated pocket of land in a seemingly insignificant place in terms of international politics and economics, the Kashmir region is being watched very closely and with no small amount of alarm by these main players and the rest of the world. Now, on the day I'm recording this, the United Nations Security Council has met at the request of Pakistan, a request that was backed by China, to assess the situation. And in addition to supporting Pakistan's request for a UN Security Council private meeting on the matter, China has also criticized Modi's move, saying that India's actions could negatively impact the population of the Buddhist-majority region of Ladakh, which is a strategically important portion of the larger Kashmir region tucked between Tibet and Pakistan. Because it is a closed-door Security Council meeting, though, any condemnations made between the parties that are present and any recommendations made will be left to India's discretion to act upon or not. At the moment, the Council has said basically, India and Pakistan, go work this out between yourselves and behave. And even though non-binding either way, this response has led to no small amount of disappointment from Pakistan and China. It's suspected, though, that due to China's other major concerns of the moment, including their ongoing ever-shifting trade war with the United States Trump administration, it's unlikely that they'll expend too much political capital trying to fend off India's actions in Kashmir. 
It's not something that they're happy about, by all indications. But they've got other irons in the fire, and those irons are already quite hot. Well, this issue is something that they can handle later, if they do decide to do something about it beyond what they've already done. There's word that after 12 days of communication silence and military occupation, Indian troops will lighten their hold on the area soon, though there's no set concrete timeline for this happening as of the day I'm recording this, and the Indian Supreme Court has postponed an assessment of Modi's government's decision to scrap the articles of the Constitution, giving them the ability to step in and take the reins of power from the local Kashmiri government, for now, because the request for that assessment was apparently badly drafted, though this request and a petition challenging the legality of the communication blackout and road closures in the area are set to be looked at later. The big frightening concern here, both regionally and internationally, is that this move could up the tempo and combative rhetoric between two or more of these countries, and that could, in time, lead to some kind of physical conflict between two or more nuclear weapon-armed nations. I should mention, though, that it's incredibly unlikely that Pakistan, for instance, would just lob a nuke at India. Not only would that be unlikely to get them what they wanted, it would also turn the world against them, and almost certainly lead to the end of their government and their current international standing. There is a serious and warranted concern, however, that two or more large militaries, conventionally armed, might fight a proxy conflict within the larger Kashmir region, which could, in turn, spiral into something bigger, but which already at that relatively small scale would be devastating to the people living within the region, the local Kashmiris. Because although there has been a lot of corruption and terrorism and similarly negative things happening in this part of the world for a while now, the vast majority of the people there have just been trying to live their lives like anyone else, and have had to do so knowing that at any moment, the sky could just open up and tactical missiles could rain down on them. A foreign military could storm in and take all their stuff and kill them just for being there. Or a fight between two or more outside forces could take place in their neighborhood, the consequence of which would be untold numbers of lives, collateral damage, but also incredible amounts of damage to infrastructure, local wildlife and ecologies, and the further degradation of their tourism industry, something that they've already had to work very hard to rebuild over the years, after numerous terrorist attacks and mass kidnappings and other conflicts that have taken place there. Another aspect of this situation that is worth remembering is that all three major sides in this conflict, four if you include the multifaceted desires of local Kashmiris, they all feel very justified in what they're fighting for in the goals that they are pursuing, which they believe controlling parts of this region will allow them to more successfully achieve. It's easy to call out one side or another for just being inherently wrong when it comes to this sort of thing, especially when every side has legit claims to the contested region in question. Almost always, though, all sides will be partially right and partially wrong, and the percentages of right and wrong will change depending on the lens through which you are looking at this situation. And every single time, each side will flog what they are right about and emphasize that for their own purposes, and then ignore or obfuscate the other parts in hopes that those portions will be ignored until some new status quo, ideally one that favors them, has been achieved. The 
TV series that I'd like to recommend today is a new one that just arrived at Amazon Prime, at least in the US and the UK it's on Amazon Prime, and it's a show called The Boys. And this is a show that apparently has been getting a decent amount of marketing. I've actually seen marketing materials for it out in the wild, which was a bit of a surprise because it seemed like a bit of a niche thing to me, but maybe not. This is a show that was derived from a comic book, a comic series that was produced from 2006 to 2008, and it's a fairly dark sort of take on superheroes, where we've got this collection of heroes who are super famous in addition to being superheroes of the crime-fighting variety, and as a consequence, they star in films, they are big celebrities, they participate in sporting events, and they work for this giant multinational corporation. And the crux of the story is that these characters who are larger than life and who are put up on a pedestal are actually incredibly flawed and actually at times incredibly monstrous, horrible individuals. And the main characters are people who recognize this and are trying to figure out ways to do something about that. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider checking out The Boys on Amazon Prime. I wouldn't advise necessarily watching it with young kids. It is fairly dark and there are periodic flashes of a variety of different genitalia, but it is a very, very good show. I was surprised at how good the translation turned out, so it's worth watching if that type of genre and that type of dark comedy slash action sounds interesting to you. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. Do feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere else. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Mm